There's a wonderful quote that says that philosophy is another word for homesickness. Meditation is very often described as a way of coming home and perhaps responding to a quality of homesickness within ourselves. If you reflect back to the first time you ever began to be really interested in practice or came on your first meditation retreat or read your first Dharma book, probably when we look back on that time, we really get a sense of how meditation practice is primarily an intuitive process. When we begin, none of us have certainty about change, about transformation. None of us have guarantees about what meditation might offer to us or deliver to us. It's primarily an intuitive exploration, sometimes an exploration that is really hard to evaluate or assess or grade in any way. We see what often really keeps meditation practice alive for us, for most of us, is in truth a sense of vision, a sense of possibility. And I think it is that sense of vision, that sense of possibility that is probably the shared link, the common denominator between every single person who practices. Sometimes we sense the possibility of living a life that is permeated with wisdom, with compassion. I think sometimes our practice is a response to an inner longing to find a way of being in the world, a way of being in ourselves that feels genuinely free of fear and division and alienation. Most of us, what we look for in our life and in our practice is in truth a way of being truly at home at home in our minds, at home in our bodies, our feelings, and at home in the world, receptive, open, sensitive, and fearless. When we speak about meditation as a homecoming, clearly, you know, we use the word home here, it's not a geographical address, but it's really pointing or describing a dimension of being that is really born of wisdom that is, can be an embodiment of extraordinary freedom. It's also a place of refuge. And I feel increasingly in a world that feels so fragile and uncertain, unpredictable, most of us really come to appreciate the tremendous need to find within ourselves an enduring refuge of acceptance, of love, of understanding. The place where we can let go of a lot and find a sense of ease. In meditation, in our practice, we learn over and over again the simple skills, we might say the simple art, of coming home, of returning home. We learn to let go in our practice of the whole world of preoccupation, preoccupation with the past, preoccupation with the future, preoccupation with all the things we can be preoccupied with in the present. We learn to let them go, to be present. We learn in our practice over and over again how to disentangle from the whole spectrum and array of images and beliefs and assumptions and conclusions that we carry with us about 
pretty well everything about other people, about ourselves, about the world. Usually we have a lot to say about most things. And we learn gently, over and over again, to disentangle from many of those stories. <coughs> we learn to disentangle in the present moment from some of the emotional and thought storms we can experience of anxiety and doubt, the storms of judgment and craving and thought. And we, we see that as we learn the art of being able to let go, simultaneously we are learning the art of allowing all things to be as they are. Now the first step, I would say, in that journey of homecoming is really this, this tremendous skill, this tremendous art of exploring what it means truly to be at peace with all things. I know we use that phrase a lot and it's very easy to turn it into a kind of cliché. But what does it truly mean for us to be at peace with all things that arise, that appear, that emerge in the outer world, in our inner world? What does it mean to be present in our life with openness and spaciousness? It's an art and a skill that we learn again and again. We learn to let go, to let things be. And it is an art and a skill that works. We find that our capacity to make peace with all things calms our mind. It calms our heart, our heart. And in a sense, a real sense, it calms our world. As we begin to calm, we also see that more and more of our life, our inner life, our outer life, becomes visible to us. In a way, letting go is learning to kind of stop telling our story all the time. And then things can speak to us. The world can speak to us, our own heart can speak to us, our minds, we can listen to them. The second step of homecoming, I would say, is as we learn to step out of the habit of fleeing. I mean, if we're kind of honest about it, we see that a lot of our life can actually be about fleeing from suffering. You know, all the strategies we use, all the mechanisms and endeavors we use are often about fleeing from what we see as being suffering or fear or apprehensive as being suffering. We are learning in our practice to step out of the habit of abandonment and to cultivate the habit, you might say, of befriending. We're learning to step out of the habit of separating and cultivating the habit of intimacy. We are very accustomed to fleeing, but we become more sensitive to the moments when we find ourselves in the act of abandonment. And maybe we're jumping into the next moment. Maybe we're recoiling or jumping away from something that we feel is challenging or difficult or unpleasant or just boring. We see ourselves searching in a way very often for a perfect moment, believing that if we could find this perfect moment, which usually means the absence of the unpleasant, and the presence of the pleasant, that if we could find this perfect moment, it would provide the safety and the affirmation and the certainty that 
that we often find ourselves longing for. But I think we become sensitive in practice that each time we flee, each time we disconnect or abandon, in truth, in that moment, we make ourselves homeless. We cast ourselves adrift. So we learn in our practice to counter that inclination to jump away with calmness and with stillness. We learn to stay connected rather than to divide. I think sometimes we discover in it, in that, that the moment and the circumstances and the experiences that we're most tempted to flee from are the moments that often offer us some of the deepest lessons we're being asked to learn about acceptance, about compassion, about understanding. In the different spiritual traditions, there's a whole variety of symbols and stories that are used to represent this journey of homecoming. And this evening I'd like to focus on one of the one series of symbols that is used in the Zen tradition, which is called the ox herding picture. Where the journey, the spiritual journey of homecoming, the journey of discovering what is true and authentic, is portrayed as a path or a journey of searching for the elusive ox that roams in the wild forest. And the ox in this series of pictures represents freedom. The ox represents our true nature. The ox represents the essence of life. In the first of the ox herding pictures, it shows a person standing with their face turned behind them and their body pointing in a different direction. They're looking over their shoulder. The commentary for this picture, it says the ox has never gone astray, so why search for it? Having turned our back on our true nature, we cannot see it. Lost in confusion, we have lost sight of the ox and find ourselves confronted by a maze of crisscrossing paths. The first picture in the ox turning picture is essentially a picture of confusion. Sense of being lost and homeless, a feeling that we experience sometimes in our life of there being something really missing that the moment or ourselves feels to be incomplete. We feel uneasy. And we don't really know the source of that unease or that discontent. And so we look at our life and we look inwardly and we see this maze of crisscrossing paths. And that maze of crisscrossing paths represents the many journeys we make in our life to find a way of filling that sense of incompletion. The many journeys that we make in our life to try and find what it is that feels to be missing, what, it, what, what feels to be the source of the discontent. And we make many of those journeys. In very real ways, our lives are a record of our search for wholeness of our search for happiness. We grow up in a world, I think, of a kind of endless promises. We're encouraged to look outside of ourselves for happiness, for fulfillment, for identity, for safety, for joy. We grow up in a world of countless prescriptions about who we should be 
or how we should be in this life. And it is often very confusing. You know, it's kind of like if you sometimes you pick up one of these, you know, these magazines, you know, and you and you leaf through it and you get all these kind of models of possibilities. You know, should we, you know, dedicate our life to being successful, to being wealthy, to finding prestige? You know, we've we've kind of seen that model. Or or should we dedicate our life instead, you know, to finding humility and self-sacrifice and simplicity? You know, should we try and be a millionaire or is it better to be an ascetic? You know, should we follow the path of of competitiveness, of ambitiousness, or should we be a renunciate? In our life, is it better to to follow a path of, of relationships, to to have children, to find the perfect partner, or is it better another model to you know become a hermit, to seek solitude? Do we retire to a cave? It is all these crisscrossing paths this maze? Should we be a hero or a martyr? Should we dedicate ourselves to serving others? Or is it time to take care of ourselves? There are a lot of possibilities for becoming in this life. Even when we come to a kind of spiritual path, it doesn't necessarily feel like all the maze of crisscrossing paths sometimes somehow gets clearer or simpler. You know, you, again, we see all these models. Should we be a monk? Should we be in the world? Should we be striving for enlightenment? Or should we be trying to use our practice to become a more compassionate person? So many paths. Devotional paths, samadhi paths, service paths, insight paths. This is what is really held in the first of the ox-herding pictures, a picture of confusion. And I think often part of that confusion about, you know, I, you know, I, you know still struggling with the question about what am I going to be when I grow up. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, what is right? It's like, what is right? What's the right fit for us? Sometimes that maze of crisscrossing paths can bring with it a sense of despair or frustration because we go down a lot of those avenues looking for the promises. And sometimes we are disappointed because we, di- we discover that the, the wholeness, the happiness, the completeness we were looking for or felt to be promised doesn't come to us. Sometimes I think it can feel like there's this endless journey of wanting and reaching, attaining. This first picture in the oxide image is a picture of estrangement, of not feeling at home within ourselves and not at home anywhere in the world. In the second picture, something begins to change. The person who's seeking the ox has turned their face around to see in front of them. And they begin to spot the traces of the ox, the footprints of the ox. In this portrait, there is a pointing towards a place where we feel in our life a beginning of awakening where we begin to feel that we're finding a sense of direction, a sense of authenticity. It is often a point in our practice in our life where it feels like our feet and our heads and our hearts are beginning to come together. We start to feel in our practice, and we often feel this shift, that we're just a little bit more established in the present moment. And the tracks of the ox, the hint, the glimpse, the sense of what is authenticity, starts to become visible to us. And the verse that is used to accompany this place 
is under the trees by the water. The ox traces run here and there. Has the herdsman woman found the way through the high-scented grass? However far the ox may now run, even up the far mountains, it cannot hide itself any longer. The moments in our life when we really feel we begin to be more awake, more present and more connected, often come in very unexpected ways. Often when I read the story of the Buddhist path, you know, it's kind of evident, or it seems evident to me at least, that the Buddha began his journey of awakening basically as a very disappointed person. You know, he'd grown up in this palace, you know, this idyllic life, had everything he needed, everything anybody could ever imagine you could need, all the, the pleasures, the gratifications, the entertainment, the distraction, the identity, the role. And he discovered it wasn't enough. He discovered it didn't work. He actually really wasn't happy. It is interesting how often that sense of disappointment is not necessarily a negative experience. Certainly disappointment can be a negative experience, you know, if we then, you know, feel that somehow we just kind of got it wrong and need to try something else. But disappointment can actually be a very awakening moment. And I think most of us, when we look back in our life, we often see that there are events, there are encounters and circumstances that often kind of stop us in our tracks and lead us to begin to question. And that is where our meditative task begins. Our meditative path doesn't begin when we come and sit on a cushion. Our meditative path begins at those places in our life where we really begin to question. When we begin to question what it is that we truly value, what it is that we want to hold at the core of our life, what we feel to be truly meaningful, what we feel is worth being dedicated to. And sometimes those moments of questioning can come in surprising ways. Sometimes from disappointment. You know, I've met people talk about, you know, having really had their heart set on some achieving some perfect success or, you know, just finding the right role in life or, you know, the, the perfect relationship or the perfect lifestyle, the perfect job. And they suddenly find they get what they thought they wanted. And yet still that feeling of not enough lingers. It's a feeling of disappointment. Sometimes someone close to us dies. And as we have unexpected meetings with loss and with change, Sometimes we have unexpected meetings with stillness and with joy. And somehow in these moments, we wake up. We wake up. You know, I think of it as a kind of mature dissatisfaction. I mean, there, there is an immature dissatisfaction we can experience in life, you know, where we feel discontented or uneasy and immediately, you know, we look at who, for whose fault it is. You know, it must be somebody's fault, somebody did something wrong or I did something wrong. But I, th I think there is also a kind of a mature dissatisfaction where actually we kind of surrender the kind of, the, the wandering down the endless avenues of projected promise. You know, where we believe if I just have this, if I just did this, if I just got rid of that, oh, then I'd be so perfectly happy. 
that's a kind of immature that, uh, you know we, we see that that's not so and we turn inwardly you know that that kind of discontent leads us to to question to search to explore we are returned to ourselves that moment of beginning to question I think are the moments when a sense of direction begins to emerge. It's a, the moments that are really often turning <coughs> points in our life. And yet there is often still confusion. We, we know roughly the direction we want to go in. We know roughly what it is that we feel that we really treasure. We know we, know we want happiness. We know we want peace. We know we want understanding, we know we want freedom. But the path to those qualities, or the way to their discovery, the path can often still feel very faint. Intellectually, we know where we want to go. But sometimes our hearts and our minds have not quite caught up. And that sense of being at home still remains somewhat separate and apart from the moment, as if it's in some other dimension, some other time, some other place. The third picture in the series is entitled Finding the Ark. And the verse that goes with it begins by saying, if you will listen intently to everyday sounds, you will come to realization and in that instant see the source. I think this picture describes a different season in our journey. It's a season where we begin to find really some roots in the present moment, a little more calmness, a little more clarity, a little more understanding. It's a point in our practice where we begin to move from intellectually understanding or knowing something to much more direct experience and understanding. We start to discover the awe. It's when we start to deepen in practice. And we see as we deepen in practice that our perceptions and our ways of seeing begin to change. If someone spills their soup on your foot in the dining room, you don't immediately think, what a fool they are. Or it must be somebody's fault. It's that deepening in our practice where we begin to lay down some of the turmoil of blame and projection. We see there are experiences inwardly, perhaps moments when there's greed, moments when there's anger, moments when there's craving. But they don't any longer fill us with self-blame, or with guilt or remorse. We learn to put down that story. And instead, we're able to see really clearly, this is greed, this is anger, this is rage. We, not what I am. We start to see things as they actually are. Laying down that burden, that story of blame, of judgment, of condemnation, of guilt, we see actually, we feel much more at home in ourselves. We feel much more at home in the present. And we don't feel like we have to run. We don't feel so compelled to flee every time we're faced with something uncomfortable or disturbing or unple unpleasant. We don't feel any longer that we have to be afraid of that, that we have to avoid it or get rid of it. We see what is happening is somehow we're learning to let go of some of the 
the preferences, the for and against. We begin to realize that the ox, or what is true, or the understanding that we seek for, isn't going to be found in some other moment. You know, that's a big shift in practice. Well, we don't think anymore, okay, when this is over, then I'm going to be really peaceful, you know? Once, I'm, once my sleepiness is gone, then I'm going to be so wise, you know? Or once my agitation's gone, then I'm going to be so peace, uh, you know, peaceful. When my sore knee is finished, you know, then of course I'm going to be so enlightened, you know? We start to stop thinking of that next moment, that most, more perfect moment when the unpleasant has disappeared, and finally then we are allowed to discover what we seek for. We start to listen to the moment, and we start to turn towards that which we previously turned away from, knowing that it is here that we find and discover about wisdom and compassion and patience and loving kindness and letting go and undeath. It is surrendering that illusion of liberation lying somewhere else. It's such a big change in our practice, in our way of seeing. You've probably noticed, or anyone can be patient in the face of the things that we really are entertained by and enjoy, Anyone can be compassionate when nothing disturbs us. Anyone can be filled with loving kindness when we're surrounded by friends. You know, and we're more than happy to let go when there's nothing that we particularly want. And yet here, what a change it is to find those qualities in the midst of each moment. We're learning to listen to what is. The second part of the verse that goes with that picture is the nightingale warbles on a twig. The sun shines on the willows. There stands the ox. Where could it hide? The fourth picture is titled Catching the Ox. And here we see the person, the herdsman, woman, desperately holding on to the ox and trying to tame it, trying to gentle it. And the verse says, with great effort, they have succeeded in catching the ox, but stubborn, willful, and strong, the ox is not easily gentled. At times it breaks out and climbs up to the high plains or rushes down into foggy marshlands to hide itself there. Most of us certainly have phases, sometimes phases that seem to last far too long, when our practice takes a lot of effort. And a lot of effort, the effort to be present, the effort to stay connected, the, the effort to stay awake, the effort just to turn off on the cushion sometimes seems heroic. There sometimes seems to be so much effort just to try to focus and to concentrate and to let go. In fact, the whole path sometimes feels like one long path of heroic effort. And we see that sometimes a lot of effort is needed because we meet our life in this practice. And sometimes we're meeting a lot of those obscurations, you know, think of the days here, you know, how much effort it has taken to, to meet restlessness, to be present in dullness, to um, stay connected with all the different states of mind that come and go, all the effort that it takes just to stay here in the midst of, you know, the moments of doubt or the moments of real agitation. But the effort takes us through some of those rocky places. And finally, we do begin to feel more in touch, more clear, more connected. 
But this part of the path of you know, heroically trying to hold on to the ox, I think it's often that part of our practice where clarity and balance feel very fragile. You know, we, we have moments of them and then we lose them. You know, we have a moment of calmness and no, you know, the voice, you know, that inner voice comes in and says, you know, I'm finally getting somewhere, you know, oh, finally I'm calm, and then we lose it immediately. You know, we have a moment of self-congratulation, you know, followed by, a, a, you know, a, a, an hour of dullness or restlessness. It, our, our, our practice, or the GP of our practice often feels so unsteady, so unreliable. And things come up. You know, we, we find ourselves falling. It's, it's like we fall from a place of balance and clarity and openness into some of our very old and familiar habits of, of judgment or resistance or hindrances. And we're prone to say at this, those moments, this shouldn't be happening. I dealt with dullness, you know, I'd like that should be over. You know, we feel like I've given enough time to dealing with agitation. I shouldn't have to do it anymore. And we try tying ourselves almost to, to the ox with our effort. It's interesting, sometimes we think that what is true or authentic, the ox wants to run from us. But part of us, I think, sometimes also really wants to run from the ox. We see as we open in practice, there's a lot that's revealed to us, and it's not always good news, is it? Hey, look inwardly, it's not always, you know, oh, gee, I'm so happy to see that greed, you know, it's so terrific to see that rage, you know, that resentment and that jealousy. Quite frankly, you know, often we feel like openings in practice, like we wonder when we're going to get to the good news. We reveal to us, and sometimes we want to run from the ox, or, or we kind of shy away from some of the insights that come. You know, we sit and we practice, and more and more we actually see the truth and the reality of change and impermanence. We, we start to see really clearly the, the effects, the consequences of grasping, whether it's the pleasant or the unpleasant. We start to see some of the, the kind of hollowness of some of our images and conclusions. We start to see what causes suffering, what is the path to suffering and what is the path to peace. And, you know, we think we'd welcome that. But sometimes we also see that insight really has implications that aren't always comfortable. You know, what are the implications of really seeing and understanding impermanence and change? You know, surely the implication is that we're really being asked to let go everywhere, in all things. Sometimes we see that the suffering of, of resentment, but you know, what is the implication of that? To see the suffering of anger, does that mean that we really have to forgive the person that we dislike? You know, or, or let go of, of you know, the, the kind of rage that we might cherish? Sometimes actually we're really happy when the ox goes and hides in the marshes. You know, it, it's like a, a kind of relief, you know, because we think, oh, then if the ox goes and hides in the marshes, I could go and have that second plate of food, you know, without remorse, you know, or, or I could have really a good session of, of you know, resentment and, and bitterness, you know, without that little voice sitting back there saying, this leads to suffering. <laughs> The other part of things sometimes is that 
you know, sometimes we get those glimpses, and this is an interesting part of practice, we get those glimpses of calmness. You know, sometimes you have like a few days in the beginning of a retreat that feel an absolute mess, you know, and, and then you finally get a few couple of hours, you know, where there's some calmness and peace. And you know you just want to go home then? You feel like, that's enough, <laughs> you know, that's really enough of that. You know, I've, I've kind of arrived, you know, and, and now I just want to kind of have some sort of enlightened retirement. <laughs> but it, we haven't finished yet. The fifth picture is called Gentling the Ark. And the commentary says, in patient training, the ox got used to the herdswoman and is truly gentle. Should he walk right now into the dust, he would no longer get dirty. Long and patient gentling. Coming or going requires no effort. The ox quietly carries the herdsperson. In this picture, what it shows this gentling the ox. You see the ox very calmly walking alongside the herdswoman, the herdsman. There's a calmness, a confidence in the practice. It's, it is that place, yes, where we move in our practice from the sustained effort to our practice actually be truly becoming more effortless. This is sort of an intimacy, a, a friendship with clarity, with understanding that is being forged. It's also the place in our practice where we move from, you know, struggle and effort. Actually, when we start to experience some of the, the benefits, some of the fruits of practice, we might start to experience moments of rapture of joy, of connectedness, of oneness, of intimacy. It's a place where our practice really can be, start to be very wonderful. What is happening is that we really begin, I think, to almost fall in love with awareness. And when we fall in love with awareness, many of our preferences fall away. We don't think in terms anymore of good and bad fittings, of highs and lows, of less or more. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. The distinctions in a way become meaningless. But they're all simply appearances. And we see that awareness really has no preferences, but welcomes all things. What has changed is that we're no longer so identified with the contents of our experience. We're no longer prone to form those sentences where we say, I am this, I am that. There just is appearance appearing. The sixth of the images in this series is entitled returning home on the ark. It says, riding free as air, we joyously come home through evening mist in a wide straw hat and a cape. Wherever we may go, we create a fresh breeze, while in our heart, profound tranquility prevails. In this picture, we see that the herds have on such unwavering trust in their practice that they can sit on the ox with ease. Both the fires of wanting and the fear of being nothing fall away. And there begins to be a season of wise choicelessness and profound trust where all our acts are guided by a natural wisdom and compassion. But still there's a subtle sense of illusion at play. 
The herd person still rides on the back of the ox. Still the ox and them, I and you. The sense of separateness. The seventh of the pictures is called Ox Forgotten. And in this picture, the ox has disappeared. And the verse says, we've come home on the back of the ox. Now the ox is forgotten. And we are at ease. Now we have returned home. Home is everywhere. When both things and self are wholly forgotten, peace reigns all day long. We see in our practice there's a time when we need a path. We need a path to show us a direction, to begin to come home. But we start to sense in the homecoming that even the path starts to fall away. And the ox somehow, we have become the ox, the ox has become us. What is disappeared is any sense of somewhere to go. What also disappears in it is any sense of self and other. The ox has symbolized freedom and, and a path in the midst of confusion, providing a direction. But when home has been reached, then awareness becomes a natural activity of walking, of breathing, of sitting. And all things become a celebration of awareness. In the eighth picture, it's entitled Both Ox and Self Forgotten. And this is a, it's a picture of a circle holding empty space. And the verse says, Space shattered at one blow, and holy and worldly both vanished. In the untreadable, the path has come to an end. The bright moon over the temple and the sound of the wind in the tree, all rivers returning their water, flow back again to the sea. The circle is the symbol of awakening, no longer two or even the concept of one, the circle of emptiness that holds all things. The ninth of the pictures is called Returning to the Source. It's a picture no herd person, no ox. It's a picture of pine trees, of mountains, of river. And the verses return to the origin, back to the source. All is completed. Inside our hermitage, there's no need to look out. Boundless, the river runs as it runs. This picture shows really the indivisible nature of both form and emptiness. That emptiness does not mean absence. That emptiness means the cessation of the separation. Emptiness means seeing the emptiness of all notions of I and you, us and other, inner and outer. It's not a negative state. In fact, all things shine in that emptiness, celebrating emptiness. The tense of the pictures in this series is called Entering the Marketplace with Bliss Bestowing Hands. And the verse says, Bare-chested and bare-footed, we re-enter the market, face streaked with dust and head covered with ashes, but a mighty laugh spreads from cheek to cheek. Without troubling ourselves to work miracles, suddenly dead trees break into bloom. In this, the herdswoman, the herdsman, is often portrayed as a very unconventional figure face streaked with dust, and yet fearless 
a picture of joy, a picture of celebration, a picture of freedom. I think all of the pictures in this series are part of the journey of homecoming in a way they describe the different seasons of spiritual deepening, spiritual awakening. They're not necessarily linear. You know that we have this and then we have that and then we proceed to that. But what really pervades all of the different pictures is the dedication to awakening, the dedication to liberation, the dedication to understanding the end of separation, the dedication to understanding what is true. And that that dedication, of course, in our practice is always the invocation of the moment. Where is the truth of the moment? Where is the freedom in the moment? Where is the peace in the moment? And what, in this moment, is actually lacking? Holding those questions, it's almost as if the seasons of the spiritual path truly unfold all of their own accord. It's not so much that we do it and we make something happen and we get somewhere. We see much more in our practice what we do is we cultivate an inner climate, an inner environment, which is really receptive to understanding. We make ourselves almost enlightenment prone. We, we cultivate a climate in which insight touches us. And yet there is the effort there. There's, there's the effort to be awake, the effort to be present. And there's also the place of knowing that what we are really asked to do is actually to let go of everything, to, to kind of absorb into that effortlessness of being and seeing and awakening. If we have just a couple of moments, quietly together, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.